Good morning, friends. How do you tell stories? When you uh, retell a story, uh, if you were to turn to your neighbor and share one of your favorite stories, like, how would you start? Now, some of you might provide so much context and so much pre-story uh, because you want to make sure that they know all the facts. Everything's lined up. Um, some of you who are relational might jump into describing the characters, what you love about the characters. Now, some of you might just jump all over the place, leaving the other person completely confused. Um, some of you might accidentally miss out those critical and important steps, forcing your spouse to intervene and say, no, 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 you have to say this part too. You have to add in this. And now some of you, your minds just went blank with the idea that I might actually ask you to turn to your neighbor and share a story. I'm not going to do that today. Don't worry about that. Um, humans tell stories. We are a story-shaped creature. We live for this. We've always told stories. And it's through the stories that we come to understand who we are, our place in the world, um, what we belong to, who we belong to, what's going on, and we get wrapped up in the characters. We start to feel alongside them. It doesn't even matter if they're furry little creatures that aren't human. It doesn't matter. We get wrapped up in their stories. Stories help us pass the time. They help us to learn empathy and kindness. As we start our new sermon series, we are going to dive deep into the gospel of Mark, Mark's story of Jesus. We're going to let Mark tell us this story, a story that, as we look closely, is intentionally and strategically developed and delivered. It's filled with literary tools that help us recognize that he planned his story. He wants us to see things and notice things and grab hold of things. Things for us to grab hold of. This story, and for many of us, we have heard so, so many times. We know how it starts. And we know the middle and we know the end. Just like the early church, when they would have heard this story, read to them. They would have known the beginning, middle, and the end. Have you ever sat with a kid and watched a movie? Have you ever sat with a kid who, and you wanted to watch the movie, and they've seen the movie like 20 times? They know what's going to happen. They, they know the whole story in their minds and they like relive it and they get so excited about it and they want to tell you everything. It's kind of fun to watch kids watch movies. Does that make sense? It's kind of fun to like take a moment away from that and just watch them watch the movie as they're like leaning in, leaning in and they're slowly getting closer and closer to the TV and you have to be like, back up. Like, how are you even seeing everything? They're like this close. Um, but if you actually wanted to watch the movie, I'd, I'd recommend not watching it with children. <laughs> they can't help themselves. They start to warn you about the scary parts. They, they laugh before the funny bits. And typically, they spoil the entire movie as they give you the play-by-play -play as you're watching it. And you're like, shh, shh, I want like, to find out what happens to these creatures too. Um, I remember as a kid... Um, I loved Aladdin. Aladdin was like my jam. I was into that character. And for me, I remember how it opened. There was this like 
picturesque scene of like dunes and sand and it's this like wonderful like land far, far away. And then it, the song ends like, you know, a fool off his guard will fall in far hard in the, the dunes or something like that. And then he turns and he's like, ah, salam and good evening to you, worthy friend. Please come close, close. And then he like gets the smoke, smack, and he's like, oh, too close. Ah, I, I could go on. My brother and I, we would like recite it back and forth to each other the entire movie. Um, some of you who have children understand what I'm talking about. Um, maybe it's Moana. Maybe for some of us that are kind of, you know, the millennial age, we could quote to you everything from Star Wars, A New Hope. It's like, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. These moments in time, these stories grab our attention. They make us think about things that we've maybe not thought before. We get wrapped up in it. But maybe the good news of Jesus, if we are honest, Maybe it doesn't capture our attention anymore. Perhaps other stories have become more significant to you. What story is shaping you today? Political stories, COVID stories, stories of suspicion and fear, stories of anxiety and uncertainty, stories of wealth and success. All around us, there are stories that demand our attention and slowly point our hearts, our desires, our longings, our values towards a particular end, a particular version of the good life that we start to want more and more because the story compels us there. Or perhaps for some of you, you aren't even sure about who Jesus is anymore, and you hear words like Mark 1.1, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and you think to yourself, I, I don't even know... I don't even know what to think. I don't even know where to go with it. God's people have used his name in so many different ways and in so many different settings. It's blurry. I'm confused. It's even painful. This story that God desires for us to enter into is important. However, I think it requires an invitation. I am asking you to join me, to join with each other, and to choose to enter into Mark's passionate plea, his passionate, heartfelt story of Jesus. And for those of you who are new to this story, and new to this journey, this is the perfect place to start at the beginning. For those of you who aren't so sure about Jesus, if you're still suspicious of the Christian faith, I invite you to suspend your judgment, to hold off on judgment, and enjoy the journey. Get to know Jesus. Let him tell you his story. And for those of you who maybe have heard the story so, so many times that it's lost its gravitas, it's lost its intrigue, it's lost its power, and in a world that demands that we pick sides and that we um, have to define power and love and authority in certain ways, I invite you to, like a child, who memorizes Aladdin or Moana or whatever, that you would re-enter into this story. Let the author tell you this story and let the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, who longs for all ears to hear the name of Jesus and his story, draw you in, convict you, inspire you, and shape you. Would, would we commit together this season 
to open ourselves to this story, to get into this story. Now, there's so much in this story that we could talk about. There's so much depth um, that we're, we're breaking it off into different sections, into, into different pieces. So just a little bit um, so you know where we're headed. So Mark is often seen as three sections. There's the Galilee ministry time. There's the time from Mark 1 to 8. And in this section, big questions are asked about who is this man? Where does this wisdom come from? Where does his power come from? And it, and it kind of creates this setting, it, it, this foundation of Jesus. And that's where we're going to spend our time for September and October. We're going to explore the power of this kingdom that God is revealing through the person and ministry of Jesus. And then, after Christmas, we're going to explore the middle section. It's kind of referred to as on the way. It's when Jesus turns from his time in Galilee and it starts this walking journey with the disciples where there's a lot of teaching and instruction on the way to Jerusalem. And in that particular part, we're going to look at the path of the kingdom. What are the values? Where, what do we anchor ourselves into? And then finally, as we approach Easter, we're going to look at the passion of the kingdom. A huge portion of the Mark gospel is devoted to the passion narrative, the time when Jesus sets his sights and he's in Jerusalem, he's spending time there, and he's going to the cross. So that's kind of the long picture of why we're going to be entering into Mark for this season. But our first and primary focus is the power of the kingdom found in Mark 1 to 8. And for if you have like desire questions about context and history and background, ask people, ask us as pastors, let us get excited and into the story because to be honest, we can't talk about it all. I would love to, we would love to. Your pastor Brian would love to talk about every single Greek word that's available. And if you want that, Set up a meeting, and he'll find some time to talk to you about those intricacies and those beautiful things. Today, we are starting at Mark 1, 1 to 13. Mark skips past, so in the other Gospels, right, we have, uh, there's Matthew, Luke, and John, and Mark skips past all sorts of things. He skips past this cosmic poem of Jesus' origins that come before time that John has, there is no genealogy. There is no birth narrative. Mark states his thesis. He's clear about that, crystal clear. He doesn't mince his words. It's not a dance. It's none of that stuff. He just goes straight in and lets us know that this is what God is up to. And he lets God's actions and the actions of Jesus tell the story and drive the point. Within 13 verses, He's basically laid it all out. The entire foundation is established. What's going on? Where is this headed? Who's the hero? Who's the villain? The introduction gives us as readers that insight about who Jesus is that even the disciples and later on other people don't even know about. So we have this look, this peering in where we get to see these interesting things. And then we get to ask the question, we've been declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Does anyone else discover this? Does anyone else figure out what we as the reader have been told? Mark uses statements like, and then, and at once, 
and immediately, over and over and over again. Actually, 42 times he uses immediately, and it creates this sense of movement and momentum and anticipation. And you're like, like okay, slow down, buddy. He, he, in that sense, he's that child that comes home, and he's like, I've got news to tell you. If there's this, then there's this, then there's this. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down the story. Let's back it up. So we're going to slow down Mark's story. We're going to back it up. We're going to get into it, and we're going to slowly let us uh, feel that. But there is that urgency. You can almost picture that it's like the on-the-spot um, news anchorman being like, and I stand here surrounded by what seems to be all of reality changing, and this world as we knew it is now coming to a... And there's that sense of dramatic momentum in the Gospel of Mark. Let me read to you uh, the beginning of Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, uh, and, and came a voice from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Could I just pray for a moment? I'm just going to pray for the rest of our talk. Heavenly Father, I just, I just ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, to, that you would stir within us a longing to hear your words if they were, if, as if they were for the first time. Lord, many of us have heard this over and over again. Some of us have never heard this. Some of us are suspicious. So Lord, I just ask that you would help us see this story for all it is, for all of its power. Thank you, Lord. Make us hungry for this. In your name, amen. So the stage has been set. Um, this wasn't some accidental hero who happened to be in the right place at the right time, making the right choice, and everything gets worked out. No, no, no. This gospel is a fulfillment of Scripture. This is the long-awaited event. Mark uses Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3, to help show that this is all based on history, that this is a fulfillment of Scripture. 
See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. And then in Malachi it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for you. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeing, seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All of this is predicting a new exodus when God would return and triumphantly lead his people out of their Babylonian exile. He makes this clear that this is not an accident. This is on purpose. And I love that it doesn't start in Jerusalem. It starts outside in the wilderness. The setting, the very place where Israel has often met with God, where Moses is out in the wilderness in the burning bush, wakes him up to the plight of his people. When the Israelites have been led out of Egypt, they are now in the wilderness and God directs them and leads them and transforms them into a nation in the wilderness. It is the place of testing and failure for the people and a place of fulfillment and commitment by God. So we have this setting in the wilderness. And then it also shows us that John, this crazy, bug-eating, camel-hide-wearing wacko that you would, if you were to see, you'd think, what is going on? It's easy for us to caricaturize him as this strange figure. But if you actually look closely into the whole narrative of Israel, he fits perfectly as the one to set up the story of Jesus because he comes from the wilderness, just like the Israelites who ate locusts and honey in the wilderness as well. It links the story with God's full redemptive plan for his people. I like the the hyperbole. I don't know if you notice this, and it's a, we're allowed to use hyperbole. It's a, it's a poetic tool. And he says, all the people of Jerusalem came out. We are pretty confident that is not the case, literally. Like, not all the people came out. But it does create us a picture that this was a big stir. This was a big moment in time. Something is going on. And then he jumps into that verse 7. Um, it's a good reminder for me. I've been listening to some podcasts as well as, well as, as your other pastors here. And one of the things that's been standing out to me is the fall of pastors. The, the demise of leaders that have been propped up and built up and things come crumbling down. This man, John, he had a good thing going. He had a following. People were lining up for his baptism. He had crowds. All of Jerusalem had come out to see him. And in that moment, I I often am challenged as a pastor, as as a communicator, if I had those lineups, what would I do with that? How would that affect my spirit, my heart? Would I have the capacity to fulfill my role as someone who redirects just like John, to say, no, 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 like, I'm not, even, I'm not even worthy to be a slave of the Messiah, to untie the sandals 
of him. It is a good reminder and a good challenge for all of us to reevaluate what leadership looks like, what it looks like to have a voice and to use it, to gather people or to elevate the name of Jesus. You know, there's been so, so much waiting in this story of, in the people of God, and there's been so much waiting for us. Um, if we just think about this past season, there's so much longing, hope, there's been people with despair and frustration. And these people as well, they are tired and they are longing for their God to do something. People are barely hanging on and they're crying out, God, when, how, why, what do we do? And I don't know about you, but we're in the middle of a fourth wave. The day after the 20th anniversary of 9-11, maybe you've been waiting. Maybe you're in a season of just, your heart is heavy. You feel like you're in the wilderness too. And you're starting to feel this desperation and this longing for something to hang on to, something to grab onto, something um, to help your school year go well or for you to help you through this transition or this moment. You, you don't want to feel lost anymore. You, you want to start again. Israel had come to that crossroads in their history. The world had slowly moved to this one moment. And unless God were to act, nothing would change. And maybe you're at that crossroads. Unless God acts, nothing, nothing's going to change. It's a hard place to be. And Israel felt stuck. So when a man emerged with boldness, they lined up. But when they lined up, he didn't say, follow me. Thank the Lord. You know, I just wish our le- like all leaders could be like John. The opposite of the narcissist. Um, this man shows up. And then we have Jesus, who quietly gets in line, nobody really notices, and he gets baptized. And as Jesus is coming up out of the water, Mark gives us a view, he gives us a glimpse that nobody else gets to see. So we're leaning in on this part of the story. We're wondering what's going on here. And heaven is torn open ripped open the layer, the divide of heaven and earth, divine and mundane, is peeled back as God steps into this world in a dramatic way. Friends, I don't want any of us to miss this. This image, this image, at least for me, is what makes Mark's story, his introduction, so crucial for all of us. Only Mark uses the word schizo, which means to tear, to rend, to pull, to peel apart. An image that points back to the passage that was read earlier in Isaiah 41. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And this image, it creates a bookend, actually, with the end of the gospel as the curtain is torn This Markin sandwich, 
we could refer to it as, is a literary device that's saying everything between these two points is, is part of this whole picture that God has pronounced Jesus' sonship, and that with that came this tearing, this removal of barrier with heaven and earth. And then the centurion at the end of the story cries out and declares Jesus' sonship as, to God as well with the tearing of the curtain coming apart and the trembling of the mountain. Have you ever been so excited to eat cereal that you open the box from the bottom? And, well, Brian has. He's like, yeah, I've done that. Um, I remember as a kid that sometimes without noticing or paying attention, you, you open the box from the wrong side and it's not designed to be open from there and you end up like tearing it open. Um, to which it's really hard to like manage that and put it back together. Um, and then the important thing is, is you don't put it back in the shelf like right side up because then when someone pulls it off, out, whoosh. Or have you ever purchased one of those items that doesn't come in a box, it comes in like a pound of plastic and it's like this small of an item and there's this much plastic and the plastic is so hard that you, you start trying to tear at it, you're cutting at it, you're peeling at it, you finally open it up, realize you don't really like it and you'd like to re-gift it for another friend to which point you realize, I don't know how I'm going to repackage this thing. It's a disaster. Or have you ever attempted to put a banana peel back on a banana once you've peeled it off? I remember um, when I was younger, I would try to, like, after eating the banana, put the peel back together so it would look like no one had eaten it, so that, like, when my sibling would, like, grab it, there'd be nothing there. I'd be like, ha ha, got you. All right. <laughs> Good job, Trent. <laughs> These, the, these pictures help illustrate for us what is going on in Mark's depiction of heaven being torn open. Doors are made to be opened and closed. That's, that's, that's what happens. They get opened and they get closed. Mark gives us a very different kind of entrance. God tears open heaven. This is a forever altering moment. This is the moment. This is where God demonstrates his intentions for us. He seals it in. There is no going back at this point. God has entered into our world in a forever way. It has been torn open. The door is not being closed back. Heaven and earth, our ability to have interaction with God, the creator, is possible and real. This is the beginning of the good news. God is acting. This is God's story. This is Him showing us. Then we have the dove, right? This symbol of deliverance, the Spirit of God resting on Jesus. This Messiah will operate in the Holy Spirit. This Jesus is God's Son. And as he enters into the wilderness himself, we see him have victory over the enemy. So in 13 verses, Mark has captured all of this. Scripture pointing to Jesus. John as a prophet pointing to Jesus. God the Father declaring the sonship of Jesus. 
wilderness testing him and proving that he is worthy of the call to be a Messiah. All of this is asking and inviting those who read Mark to lean in that the next things to be declared, that the things that Jesus is going to say and do have evidence and weight and authority. The stage has been set. And as we walk through this narrative together, we might gain insights from characters around Jesus. We might appreciate the setting and the events, but all the attention is designed to be on Jesus. Jesus alone. This is about him. I'm going to have the worship team, we're going to come up and we're going to, they're going to, we're going to sing another song together. What I would invite you to do in this moment, if this has been that season of longing and waiting and wishing and hoping and praying, that as they sing, that I would, I would invite you to just make a choice in your own heart that you would see what's going on in this story, that you would make space for our good God who has chosen to break into this world, that you would make space for him. That might be a decision to say, Lord, it's time for me to turn my attention back to you. I'm done with those stories. I'm shutting down social media. Whatever decisions you might need to make, maybe it's an opportunity for you to say, you know what? I'm going to get into a Bible study. I'm going to actually start learning more about God's word. Maybe it's just a decision for you to confess that you've been living out a lie, living out a story that's not true about who you are, and it's time for you to live a different kind of story, a story where a God has ripped apart the barrier of heaven and earth, stepped into this world so that we might know Jesus and know him and know salvation. Uh, Would you sing with us together? Mm -hmm.